Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Dedu, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. Today I interview Michael Dunn, founder of ZozoGo and winner of the Winning in Asia podcast, which covers the auto sector in China. Mike has a depth of experience in China, which is an area that we haven't covered as much as I'd like to on this show, so this was a great conversation. It gave rise to a lot of discussions about the lay of the land in the Chinese auto sector, the role of Chinese auto sector in micromobility, and how micromobility will need to change to see adoption from those who are coming from poverty into wealth and are looking for high-status vehicles. It's a great discussion and one that I think you'll really enjoy. In the meantime, if you're in the States, the next Micromobility America conference is now scheduled for the 23rd of September. It'll be at Pier 70 in San Francisco and have more than 50 top speakers from the industry, more than a thousand global participants and hundreds of startups and brands represented. If you love this space and want to find your tribe here, head to micromobility.io to find out more details. And with that, here's Mike. Let's go. Welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Mike Dunn. How are you, Mike? Never better, my man. Never better. Awesome. Hey, I am so excited to have this conversation with, this is actually the second time we're trying to have this. I'm really glad that we've been able to kind of circle back because I have a feeling this is going to be super packed with really, really awesome information. And, you know, I think this is the thing. We've wanted to cover more on Micromobility on China and just haven't had a chance. We've struggled to find people who can talk about it authoritatively, which is why I'm super excited to have you on today. So maybe what we can do is like, could you just give us a bit of background? Like how on earth did you end up with connections in the auto industry or looking at transport in China and go from there? Great, maybe maybe a nice place to start would be to dive right into my very first experience arriving in China itself. And my first impressions of the place in particular the crush, well, I'll call it the crush of humanity, the likes of which I'd never mm. seen before and never seen since in my lifetime. You arrive at the airport, if you've been to China, as you have, you'll know that you walk through those, you know, they pick up your luggage and then you have the doors open on into the big floor. And there were hundreds, probably thousands of people there waiting. And you kind of feel like, well, this is what it's like to be a rock star, I guess. There's just thousands of teeming with the places teeming. And you think some major event is happening. No, this is China every single day. There's just yeah. people on top of people. And one of the nice and knowledge, one of the things that brings it home to me is if we, if we take the United States and we take China and we look at them and they're approximately the same size in terms of they're both continental countries and they're about the same size, square miles. But the difference is that imagine taking the entire population of the United States, say 330 million people, and moving everyone east of the Mississippi. Okay, so all the states right. move over there east of the Mississippi. All the people in China more or less live along the eastern coast. Not only do you move everyone in the United States east of the Mississippi, but then you multiply them overnight, you snap your fingers and multiply them by four. There's four times yeah. that many people living in that small area. That's China. So you're in Beijing and you think, I've never seen so many people. You get on a flight, you fly to Shanghai, you go, what happened? Did they move all the people who are in Beijing to Shanghai while I was <laughs> up in the air? This is impossible that you could have so many people. The point being that say you're in charge of China, you're the chairman of the People's Republic. You wake up tomorrow mm -hmm. morning, how am I going to feed 1.3 billion people. How am I going to move them around in an efficient, convenient way that doesn't drown me economically? How do we get this done? So yeah. since my first step into China in the 1980s, or the year was 1986, up until now, we've seen probably three chapters of different efforts to get people from point A to point B. Um, all the while, wrestling with this gargantuan problem to be solved of how do we move people around it's as simple as that and it's as tough as that yeah the thing that struck me as amazing and i've been to china i went there in 2018 was just the as you say the density and and as a result they're just going we can build infrastructure 
that is you know, the, the thing I loved about China was the high speed trains. They just blew my mind of just going, wow, we can move so many people from one place to another. Anyway, but I feel like we're going to get very distracted doing that. But I do want to understand more of your background. Yeah. And for folks who haven't had a chance to go listen to Mike's podcast, I really encourage you to do that. The Winning in Asia podcast. Winning yes. in Asia podcast. That's right. And has incredible people who were in that industry all over. And that includes the, uh, you know, head of the new Foxconn manufacturing unit and or partnership that are looking to build kind of vehicles and using the things that have been come from the electronics industry going into the auto industry, uh, or just also just Simon Moores from Benchmark Minerals, who's looking at all of the, the supply chain for lithium-ion battery. I mean, you have like incredible guests. That's the been, thing that kind of blew me away when I was looking been at it. Very, very fortunate. Henrik Fisker, founder of Fisker Inc., Thomas Ingenlath, who is the CEO at Polestar, Peter Rawlinson, former chief engineer at Tesla, now CEO of Lucid, Another formidable new EV startup was our guest recently. So yep. it's all happening. Fascinating characters. How did I get connected with them? Well, yeah, yeah. well, this is the thing. It's just like <laughs> I was looking at your podcast. I was like, man, these are like, this is the who's who of the Chinese auto industry. And, and how did you even get there? That was, that was the, the question. The story is I'm one of seven children, grew up in the city of Detroit, Irish Catholic family, first son, and of course, what does the first son do? He follows in the footsteps of his father. My dad was an automotive journalist and also a legendary guy who was known as the ultimate car spy. He took photos of cars before they were introduced to the public by hanging around proving grounds, Beerborn, Michigan for Fords and Plymouth for Chrysler. So I was his, his getaway car driver and I got to know cars really, really well. The only drawback was that the town wasn't big enough for the two of us. My dad was a big name in Detroit and I found, hey, I need to do something a little bit different. And he said, yes, go west, mm. go west, get get out of town, go discover something. And I went west and I kept going across the Pacific, China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, studying, yes. I studied Chinese at the University of Michigan. My parents were seriously concerned. Where have we gone wrong? What is our son doing? It's the 1980s. China's might as well be on Mars, but I really found a passion in learning the language and the history and the fascinating mm. culture. So it was with that that I graduated from Michigan with a degree in Chinese and an MBA from Michigan. And I thought, well, let me see if I can connect some dots here. I know cars. I'd been behind the wheel of virtually every make and model by the time I was 18 years old, thanks to my dad's job. He had a new car in the driveway every week to test. And, I, and mm. now I had another edge. I knew Chinese, which one in a million people from Michigan definitely did not know at that time. So what do we do with a yes. degree like that? Get on a plane, go to China. And I shortly founded a company called Automotive Resources Asia with the ambition to be sort of paving the way for automakers and suppliers when they would discover this gargantuan new opportunity called China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Get, get on the ground in China and there's only one drawback. This is imagine this is 1986. No, there's no cars on the road. <laughs> there are no people don't have incomes. Private ownership was out of bounds. The only cars you did see were the occasional red flag or Shanghai sedan painted light blue that were the purview of Chinese government officials. There's just no private ownership. Mm -hmm. So, but I was determined that this place might come around and eventually start to build cars and sell cars. And that's exactly what happened. So I got involved very early on as a sort of call it reconnaissance guy for the automakers suppliers who would want to come into China. And when they got there, imagine their surprise and delight when they find, oh, wait a second, you speak Chinese, you're from Detroit and you know cars. Okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so totally. we built that, that company up over the, through the 1990s into the 2000s. Along the way, I met a Dave Power, the founder and his son, Jamie Power of uh, JD Power and Associates. They too, at that time, mm -hmm. were interested in getting from the United States into the China market. And so they acquired my original company and I became managing director of JD Power China for several years. So we'll pause there, but that's some background. Cars, Detroit, China. Yeah. 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 Well, this is the thing. So, so, you know, Horace and I've been doing a little bit of work at the moment around looking at the, the, the global auto industry. And as you say, you know, I think there's a story that I think a lot of people have in their head is that where is the big auto market? You know, it's the traditional auto markets. In 2005, that totally was the case. You know, it was the US, it was Europe, Japan. And the thing that blew my mind is when we were looking at the data, it's like, no, China is now the world's largest car market. And if you look forward to 2035, it's going to be double 
the largest next car market. I mean, it's just like orders of magnitude bigger than I think most people. And it's such a quick change, right? Like, you know, 15 years is not that long a time, really speaking between 2005 to now, and then where we're going to be going in the next, you know, 15 years. So in some ways that it feels to me like what China ends up doing determines a lot about what's going to happen in the rest of the world, especially around things like climate or especially around new powertrains or business models around how the auto sector is going. So I can imagine it's the most fascinating place. That's a great point uh, because so for so long, at least here in the United States, we've taken for granted that the rules of the road are designed and manufactured and made here in the United States. But we didn't understand why. Why Why was that the case? Well, ask the Japanese, ask the Koreans, ask the Germans, because we're the biggest market. And every, the market has that kind of leverage. And the Chinese have come to understand, oh, yeah, they carry a big, big, they pack a big punch because their markets are so large. Not just large, largest by far, just as you say, to give you some numbers, this year probably landed about 24 million vehicles compared to about 17 in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. Then you look underneath that and you see, oh, largest luxury market in the world, twice the size of the U.S. luxury market, largest EV market in the world, probably four times the size of the United States. So across the board, whether it's premium or electric or your everyday cars, China's number one. And with that comes a lot of leverage to make the rules, just as you say. Totally. Totally. Well, look, as we were talking about it before, I think you told me some stats around, well, you gave me a lay of the land of the Chinese auto makers that I thought was incredibly valuable. Mm. And I'd love for you to do that again. And yeah, especially that kind of point around, you know, where all the companies come from, but then also what we got to in terms of capacity. Yes. Yes. Great point. Yeah. So, you know, I can't tell you the number of times that people in particular reporters have called and said, well, we heard there's over a hundred automakers in China. I mean, which one is which? And so you pause, take a deep breath and you say, yes, there are more than a hundred different assemblers. They're located north, south, east, and west and how to make sense of them all. So over the years, I've come up with a little cheat sheet that's I found quite useful and I think you can bank on it. So, and that cheat sheet sort of follows a chronology of what China's wanted to get done with its auto industry. So from the very beginning, as the story goes, Deng Xiaoping in the early eighties, took an overseas trip to the United States and Japan, and he he immediately made a connection. Wealthy countries have strong automotive industries and vice versa. So we too, China, we should have cars to call our own. How are we going to get that done? He came back to China and more or less directed his ministers to say, hey, these six state enterprises, state-owned enterprises, will be the vanguard of China's future auto industry. They'll be the leaders. They'll be our Toyotas and Fords and Daimlers. He, he selected them, two are in the city of Shanghai and Guangzhou, the others are centrally government owned, but think big six automakers. So they said, great, Mr. Dung, that's terrific. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to lead. We don't have any know-how, capital, personnel, equipment. We've never done this before. Cash, how are we gonna get this done? He said, oh, this formula is simple. This is going to work. What you're going to do is similar to what Japan and Korea did, form joint ventures with global automakers. And over time, we will gradually learn how to build cars on our own. So during the 1990s, and in particular in the 2000s, we saw an explosion of new joint venture partnerships between these big six state enterprises and virtually every major global automaker around the world. Just to give you a couple of examples, Shanghai Automotive Industry Corporation, which is the largest state enterprise of of the six, is partnered with both General Motors and Volkswagen. Another state under- That's SAIC. Yes, SAIC, that's right. Shanghai Auto Industry Corporation, also known as SAIC, also known as Syke, massive company as a group, VW plus GM plus Shanghai's own branded cars. They build about 6 million cars a year. So- you know, outside of the China, it's like SCIC, what? But inside China, it's known as a powerhouse. And they get that yeah, totally. powerhouse and profitability by not only building their own cars, but also through these joint ventures, generating cash with VW and GM. One example, another quick one, Guangzhou Automotive Corporation, located very close to Hong Kong in the south, has partnerships with Toyota, Honda, Stellantis, and Mitsubishi four joint ventures with global automakers. So the good news for China is that over the years, those joint ventures have been highly profitable 
and all, half of the profits go to the Chinese side of the joint venture. The unwelcome mm. news for the Chinese is that they become so reliant on the design and engineering of foreign partners that they never really had strong incentive and got around to building their own high quality cars. So when you yep. think of the state enterprises, you think of, well, they haven't achieved the original goal that Deng set out for them. And that is to build great cars with Chinese brand names. Okay, so that's phase one. Round 2000, you see the arrival of three private entrepreneurs who say, hey, Mr. Deng, hey, central government planners, look, the state enterprises are not getting the job done. We want to set up our own privately owned companies with our own brand names. We'll move faster, we'll be more profitable, be more innovative, and we'll be able to put Chinese names on our cars. And they got one way or another, they were able to finagle the licenses and approvals to get that done. So who are those three companies? BYD, that's Warren Buffett invested electric car maker. Geely, the, the, the company that acquired Volvo and has a, a huge stake in Daimler. And then you have a third company called Great Wall Motors, which is you can think of as like the Jeep or the SUV maker of China. Now, mm -hmm. how big are these companies? Both Geely and Great Wall produce more than a million vehicles a year. BYD is right around half a million. So there's your next big chunk. You got the big six state enterprises. You've got the big three private enterprises. And then just in the last few years, we've seen the arrival of really exciting new EV startups that are powered by and funded by China's most progressive, wealthiest, smartest tech companies. So you will be familiar with the names like NEO and Xpeng, yep. which are both listed in New York now, aspire to be like the Teslas of China. So those are your three big buckets of automakers in China. And as a group, they'll account for probably 85, 90% of total production. Now, there are others out there called Cherry and JAC and JMC and Zote and Udo and alphabet of names, but they're much, much mm. smaller players and not so significant. So those are the three sort of big groups to watch. Totally. And th thank you, because I think this is exactly what I think a lot of people who look at the Chinese auto industry and they're like, what? I'm just overwhelmed with the <laughs> vehicles. And there, because a lot of those names don't traditionally haven't made any sense or, or haven't been well recognized. Y yes. Just to play on that just briefly, everyone will ask, well, wh yeah. which one's the Toyota of China? Yeah, yeah. And there isn't a yeah. Toyota of China because things are not so neat. You know, you've got state enterprise, you've got joint ventures, you've got privately owned, you've got electric startups. It's a, it's like a big ocean of different colored fish swimming all together at the same time. And it doesn't, it isn't clean or neat as we'd like it to be, but it's what it is. It's that's China. Yeah. The sense that I get is it wasn't there some sort of directive from Xi Jinping about, you know, we're going to consolidate the market from 600 down to 300 bankers or something like this that happened recently where, where you just go like, Holy, yeah. you know, <laughs> you come from the you come from the uh, the American auto industry, or or generally any more advanced auto industry. You look at it, even Stellantis, the fact that they're like consolidating the Italians and the French into one, and all this sort of stuff. You go, there was that day in the early days of the auto industry in the U.S., which I'm sure you know very well. Which is, you know, there used to be thousands of manufacturers in the U.S., and then it consolidated down to three because there is that early days when everybody's sort of building and the industry is sort of very new and all that sort of stuff. And it feels to me like China's very much still in that phase. Absolutely the case. And will probably remain in that phase for years to come. I remember even the early 1990s, there were people asking me, when are we going to see consolidation? How many more years? Four years, five years before we see consolidation in the Chinese auto? If anything, it's been proliferation. It's gone the other direction. One of the reasons mm. for that, and we won't spend too much time on it, but I do think it's an important thing. If you're outside China trying to understand the place from inside is China, remind ourselves China is not a market economy, not a market economy. So how are decisions made? How are companies licensed and approved for production? The government officials, the regulators have a huge say in this. So you say, oh, OK, well, why can't the central government just mandate there's three automakers done full stop? Well, the way China works is that a lot of the power has been decentralized down to the city and provincial level. So each of the provinces then says, hey, we want to have an auto industry because that means investment, that means jobs, that means technology, innovation, tax revenues. Why, why shouldn't we? And as a result, you've got 
a flowering of auto industries across the country and no no power at the central level is strong enough to say hey enough of this nonsense we need to consolidate the voice is always there mm. at the central level but the economy is decentralized to such an extent that they can't pull the trigger they can't make that happen that's a constant tension within the auto industry in china it's not a market economy the regulators at the local level can basically form and sustain their own auto companies despite what the central government may ask them to do totally yeah, you know and because the reason that i asked that question is because i think about it and go if it's not responding to market economies then obviously you're going to end up with areas of overcapacity right and so can you talk through that overcapacity yes precisely so it leads to tremendous overcapacity okay so if this year we're on track for about 24 million units of sales and 99 98% of what's sold in China is built in China. Just to give you the numbers, mm. 24 million sales, 24 million production on capacity of about 40 million cars and trucks. You have an overhang of 16 million vehicles, which is the size of Europe or the United States. Just, oh, yep, we have this excess capacity. Thanks very much, we're fine. And that's how China works, highly inefficient, but they're able to, at least up until now, sort of absorb the blows of inefficiency and look out now, they're starting to export. What do we do with all this yeah. excess capacity? Exports are way up this year and they'll continue to grow in the coming years. I think in Australia, in England, Norway now, uh, they're knocking on the door in the United States, Latin America, they're in Africa, they're in, mm. that's, that's mm. going to be the next wave of what to do with all this excess capacity. Totally. Well, look, in some ways leads us to micromobility because this is where I've wanted to talk to you about this because I've, I've heard a lot of your other podcasts and they've all been on, you know, they're really on the auto industry. And I want to thank you so much for taking us through that because I think all of that informs what we're about to talk about, which is the, so I'm an advisor to a company called Nimbus and Nimbus makes a tilting three-wheeled electric vehicle. And one of the things that has been really interesting is I've spent time talking to the team there as they're like, yeah, we can get a contract manufactured in, in China because there's all this excess capacity for a for small lightweight electric vehicles that, you know, effectively we can go and get it done and exported out of there for prices that appear crazy, you know, like just super low. Yes. But we can do very large production runs. And I look at where the Chinese auto industry has gone. Like obviously the big auto stuff has been built. But there's also this crazy little industry, you know, the, the light speed electric vehicles, yes. the, the kind of mini EVs, which sell from between $600 to $2,500 a pop, only go up to 50Ks an hour. You don't need the driver's license. But those are starting to like obviously explode in popularity and start to get exported. But it's not really covered. But a lot of that kind of, I feel, comes from the fact that they've had this huge drive for the auto sector. There's a lot of extra capacity and it's part of the creative destruction process. So you go, well, what else are we going to use this with stuff that's effectively fully depreciated equipment or something? So like, what else could we repurpose it to? And I, look, I'm just curious. I mean, what do you see coming down the pipe in the micromobility sp space? Because it feels to me like China went from a largely bike-based economy to very car-based cities and is realizing the error of their ways. It's built mass transit, but is now starting to shift back. The, the, the big bike boom came from China. Yes. You know, the, the first, the first micromobility bike Yes, boom. it did. Yes, it did. So just as you described, there have been three chapters, call it in the eighties and nineties when bikes ruled the road. I remember being, my first job was in Beijing taking a bike to work. That's what everyone did. You were shoulder to shoulder every morning at rush hour with thousands of other bikers uh, flying, riding on flying pigeons, these black basic bikes, commuter bikes. Yes. And no one dared. You didn't want to make a mistake or get in an accident because if you fell, hundreds of other bikes around you would fall too. So that was the big challenge. Cars at the hmm. time, we saw the occasional bus and truck and once in a while a black sedan, which meant either a government official or a police officer, but it was bikes, bikes and more bikes in the 80s, early 90s. Then I remember a good friend of mine got a sedan, a Volkswagen Santana 2000 sedan right around 1995. Remember like yesterday, they paid cash for $40,000 for a four-door sedan that had been designed and developed in Brazil 
by VW like 15 years earlier. So it was a big deal. Oh my God, we have a car and we're gonna spend half our life savings to get this thing, which was at the time highly prestigious. You know, like, oh, individuals owning cars. Whoa, this is something crazy. So mm. that was the beginning of a revolution from 95, 2005, 2015, call it the next 20 years, China went from zero private ownership to by 2015, like 20 million, 20 million cars a year. Oh, great. We're the biggest car market in the world. We also have the worst traffic jam in the world. I mean, it went from nobody on the streets to just you're sitting in traffic and not moving for hours at a time. Enter around 2015, enter the tech industry with two big initiatives. One is, hey, what if we introduce bikes with apps that allow people to go up in their dockless and you just you use your QR code and you get access to a bike. We can track those people and get their data and know where they're going. It'll be phenomenal. And there's some startups called MoBike and Hello Bike and Ofo and hundreds of millions of dollars of investment went into that and, and they bought tens of millions of bikes. And if you're in Beijing or Shanghai, you're walking down the road, there's a bike, just grab it and go free. And it was phenomenally popular with people for the next few years. So tech getting in there and seeing an opportunity to capture data by giving away free bike rides. We can come back to it later. That did not end well because there's oversight, too many bikes, too many competitors, giving away stuff for free. And how do we capture the data and turn this into money? So uh, several hmm. of those players went bankrupt, but tech drove that initiative. The other way in which tech has been a catalyst for the revival of bikes is our e-bikes are small motorcycles that are electric powered delivery business. Just to give you some numbers, mm. I was checking them today. There are now, they estimate 300 million e-bikes across China. That's about the same number of cars that exist in the United States and in China for that matter now. So 300 million e-bikes, they're used both for personal transportation because not everybody can afford a car and it's terrible traffic jams and insurance and parking and all the rest but also delivery services are massive in China. So you have guy, people with full-time jobs delivering food and other stuff to, to people's homes in, in Shanghai, Beijing and around. So those have been the two catalysts of a revival of bicycles and e-bikes across the country. And they more or less enjoy the full endorsement of the government because the government sees no matter how many roads we build, more cars, we just, can't keep up with the the pace of car buying. So, yeah, because that that strikes me. It's like when Horace and I look forward to you know the next fifteen years or so, and we go, you know, where is the growth in vehicle? Well, mobilize motorization, mm -hmm. right? So, so you, you know, I live in New Zealand. We've got eight hundred and fifty cars per per thousand people. It's one of the most car dependent transport systems in the world. Mm -hmm. We might shift a little bit of that across to other vehicles. But I look at somewhere like some areas of China or even, you know, look at Africa, look at India, the level of mobilizations, they'll have, you know, 20, 30 cars per thousand people. So the, all the growth is going to come there. And when you talk about, you know, China went from everybody getting a car to giant traffic jams, it's because of the infrastructure, obviously all the problems that the US has faced and a lot of these other countries are facing New Zealand too, of going, okay, oh man, wow, this is a lot of money we have to spend on infrastructure and it's all giant six-lane highways and it requires us to like destroy our cities in some ways. And, you know, we can we compare that in some ways with like public transport, but, it, you know, it's still hard to do. All of it takes a long time to build and all that sort of stuff. And I think China obviously has a huge industrial base and there's a juggernaut's able to do it. A lot of those countries are not going to be able to do the same mm -hmm. thing. They're not going to be able to build the level of infrastructure at the same pace that everybody's talking about. And so, you know, our thesis is that there is going to be increased demand for vehicles that are smaller, ge like geometrically, so that they can actually move through the cities. You go to places like Jakarta and you go, you know, this is some of the worst traffic in, in the entire world. You want to be able to get through a city quickly. And so what are you going to want? You're going to want a small vehicle that can zip through the, the thing and you don't get stuck in a big car. And you want to have some level of climate control and all that sort of stuff. That's our thesis around heavy micromobility, et cetera. The sense that I get with China is that it's still a very car focused thing. It's still very, you know, like there's a prestige of, attached to the car. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I am curious, like, because in some ways that like Horace has made the point, it's like, 
you see the latest Porsche ads for the new Taycan Cross Turismo, and it's a Porsche is like pulling into a garage in Germany or some fancy place. And of course, there are electric bikes hung on the wall because that is the thing these days. If you're rich, you know, if you're looking for social prestige, you have an e-bike. And that same switch, I feel like we're attached in China, certainly, and I think in a lot of other countries, we're attached to this like inexorable, the car's it, you know, you want a car. There's so much kind of attachment to that, especially from a, you know, you make some money, that's the first thing you want to go buy. That's absolutely the case in China and has been since around 2000. It's so prestigious to be able to own your own car. I remember my friends, they don't talk about handling, acceleration, braking, um, sportiness of a car. They talk about the brand name and they talk about mm. the convenience and the privacy. You know, the privacy is a big deal too. I remember getting on and off of buses and trains in China, back to this, what I call a crush of humanity, literally, and I don't exaggerate, been through it so many times, elbows are flying, people are pushing, the people coming off the bus are pushing one direction, people getting on the bus are pushing the other. They won't let, no, you, you can't get, I got to get on the bus, I can't let you off the bus yet first. So yeah, just the, the refuge that a car represents and then the prestige the car represents and the brand name. And I'm not going to buy a Geely when I can afford a Toyota, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. no question about it. The only dent I've seen in that is that just in the last few years, friends of mine in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen are saying the traffic is so bad. I waste so many hours in my car commuting and parking is impossible and insurance rates are going way up. Let me just take a DD or let me get a bike yeah, or get some other solution. They're looking for other solutions. So I feel like we're just at a turning point in that regard. And the demand in China for cars does reflect that. There are many who say, and I would agree, that we have probably hit peak car demand in China. If you look at this year's numbers, last few years, the market has been down year on year, total demand for cars. This year is the same. The interesting thing is electric vehicle demand is up by 100%, but overall for ICE vehicles, it's down double digit. So this sort of over congestion in the city, taxing in the city, license plates, regulation, they have quotas in several cities about how many cars you can buy. All those are tamping down demand. And so we probably have hit peak car. And now people are looking increasingly at alternatives, including and especially micromobility to get around. That's super fascinating. I, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, about, I've always wondered about that cultural shift, especially as you, as we start, because I still think that there's a, as you say, there's an enduring legacy mm -hmm. to the prestige of a car, mm -hmm. you know, which is you still want it. You want it. And, and actually one, th one thing I did find super interesting, I don't know if you know this, but if you look at the VKT or the vehicle kilometers traveled, v VMT, vehicle miles traveled for the Netherlands, yes which has the highest rating, like highest mode share of bikes for trips, right? If you look at the VMT, largest VMT is still the car. Mm. And the second is rail. And the third is biking. Hmm. So people will still have an owner car. They just end up shifting what they use those trips. They, they, they have multiple vehicles mm -hmm. and they just end up taking the shorter trips with this and all that sort of stuff. You know what? That makes a lot of sense too. A lot of Chinese will have cars that they don't use just yeah. for the yeah. peak. Why? Because you own a car. Yes, I do. Which, what Audi? Okay. Check. You're in the club. You're good. Yeah. Conversely, yeah. I remember one time going to a meeting in downtown Beijing meeting went great my colleague i met him there from a different company i went to my car and i saw the boss of the host company walk my colleague out and say where's your car and he said oh i, I took a taxi here <laughs> and i saw the the host company ceo's face just go to a frown like oh my god you're kidding me you took a tax you don't have your own car and driver what no okay we're probably not going to do business together so it's wow. that strong. Yeah, interesting. Whereas in the in the US, you might say, I remember meeting the CEO of an AV company a few years ago in Silicon Valley. I met him in front of this car and he had taken an Uber to meet me in front for a meeting at his company. And he didn't think anything of it. No big deal. But in China, you would never do that. You would definitely want to show up in a car that leaves an impression, probably have a driver in the front seat too. 
Yeah. Wow. Interesting. That's super fascinating. That certainly gives me, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot, especially as we think about what these vehicles are going to look like, right, going forward and and where the space, I mean, Horace's whole thesis around micro is that, you know, these vehicles, they're built in modularity. They're going to come from the bottom and they're in the beginning going to be beneath contempt. Mm -hmm. In other words, like you say, socially, never anybody would ever think that this is cool. And certainly from the early days of the Chinese market, like, China was the largest electric two-wheeler market because of the bans that were done in 2004 yes. around internal combustion engines. So you, you had these super kind of low-end, lead battery, terrible performance scooters, moped-style things with pedals on them so that they were technically classified as an e-bike. And, and then it, it goes further and further and further up market. And where I can see this going is that you build a vehicle that's, you know, nowadays we're starting to get the racing, which will have, you know, zero to hundred and three seconds on a little two-wheeler scooter. You start putting that performance into a three-wheeled or a four-wheeled vehicle that's a single-seater and you make it an expensive thing and only you have to kind of spend a lot of money to get it. And people know that you have to spend a lot of money to get it. And then you can, it's, it's not, you know, the technology will find its way into something that's expensive and then there'll be some level of social prestige, hopefully that gets attached to it. And that's how quote unquote micromobility wins in markets like this. But I don't see anybody doing that. That's super high-end premium micromobility for larger vehicles that might provide the privacy and solve the jobs to be done of what you're talking about. Right, right. In particular, you mentioned Jakarta. I'm reminding myself of times when I would be late for a meeting in Jakarta, I jump out of the car that was driven, I was driven in and jump an Gojek or an Ojek. Okay, so I would get there in record time, but I would also be smelling all kinds of fumes and gas and people are looking at me like, oh my God, this boule is on the back of a motorcycle, what's going? So socially, it would take a while, I think, before that would kick into a point where, hey, look at so-and-so, they're on a high-end scooter weaving their way through, that's very smart, but on the other hand, it's still awkward in Asia. Like, "Mm, you really... It's more acceptable to sit in the traffic for two hours and be late for the meeting than yes. to yeah, fascinating. at least right now, at least right now. Yeah. 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 I get it. Yeah. yeah. It's just such a, such an interesting time. I, so there's one thing that I would love to unpack with you a little bit, because I think it's one of these, these pieces of news that hasn't been covered mm-hmm. as anywhere near as well as I think it could. And you've obviously interviewed a bunch of folks involved, which is Foxconn has recently come out and said, we're going to get involved with auto manufacturing. And so they've gone, they've gone and they're building an alliance. They're going to be spending time looking at this and they're not specifically looking to build their own vehicles, but they're looking to build an ecosystem around vehicles that get built. And I'd love for you to kind of explain that a bit. And then if we could get into it, because the one that I think is probably the most interesting and relevant to us in this, in this conversation has been around their partnership with Gogoro. Yes. That was exactly the question I put to Jack Chung when he was my guest. He's the CEO at Foxconn MIH Alliance. And I said, what does it mean to be an open platform for electric vehicles? And the way he explained it was that up until now, the global auto industry has been really characterized by silos so that individual first tier suppliers and second tier suppliers would develop proprietary technology and products and services that they would sell into individual auto companies and everyone's making a markup on their technology, but you have a lot of replication, duplication across the industry unneeded. And his concept is we can easily cut the cost of manufacturing electric vehicle in half, if not more, by having an open source where suppliers deliver, help us to create your basic manufacturing platform for an electric vehicle of all shapes and sizes. And then companies can differentiate through the user experience, through the connectivity or through the autonomous vehicle technologies or what have you. But the essential underlying platform for different types and sizes of vehicles, would the cost would be driven down to like nothing. And that's the great promise. Yeah. He's saying a lot more people could be transported a lot more efficiently and lower cost through this model. Now, they kind of base it on, they call themselves like, the Android of the auto industry, just open source and make it affordable for as many people as possible. Now you need to have some big players join that and say, we're in and act on it for it to work. So that's where we are. That's the big gamble. Will they be able to break that traditional culture of proprietary individual siloed um, first tier 
manufacturers supplying to automakers? That's the big question and the big opportunity. Yeah. So, so this is fair. So, so interesting because obviously Horace and Horace got into doing micromobility in the first place. And I, I was interested and followed him the whole way through on that journey, which was he started something called a SIM car in 2014. It was a podcast and it was about what does disruption in the auto industry look like? Everybody thinks it's Tesla, but actually if you go and follow the kind of thesis around how does car manufacturing work, it's the supply, the, the actual factory and the way that we manufacture vehicles has not changed in a hundred years. And he was very taken by this idea of iStream, which is a Gordon Murray manufacturing, making it a lot more modular, looking at ways that we can build systems. So sort of like, can we modularize parts of the production? And he kind of came out of it and was like, no, I don't think that's possible. Given the way that it's so political and it's so tied and the factories cost a billion dollars and you have to do a production run of 500,000 vehicles to pay off the vehicle and all that sort of stuff. It's like, it's super inflexible. And thus, that's why we got to micromobility. Mm. Because he's like, that's where the interesting innovation is happening. And yet, I think he's, you know, obviously he comes from the mobility world, the idea of com mobile computing, right? And, and Foxconn is the biggest player yes. in that space. Yes. In the, in the actual manufacturing aspect to it. So that's why I've been super excited to see where they've come from. I do agree with you though, which is, you know, it's the hard one of who's going to bite because the value that an OEM has when they look at, you know, any of these manufacturing, it's just, it's, they don't want to give up that control. No. They don't want to, you know, and so iStream had the same problem. iStream was developed in 2009 they were like, we have a, a effectively a plug and play manufacturing solution for anybody who wants to come along. It would mean that in theory, Virgin or someone could come along and say, we want to manufacture mm -hmm. cars and they would do it like, we can build you the whole car. You just brand mm -hmm. it. And they tried to do partnerships with Yamaha. They did like some concept city cars and things like that. No car has ever been actually produced using iStream except Gordon Murray himself doing his new super high-end sports cars and that, and that sort of thing. So I think that there's the question, I think you're totally right to point it out. It's like, the question is, do these auto OEMs bite? Whereas I think that the micromobility space with its far more modular production, you know, easy to go and combine a bunch of things. You oftentimes have lower regulatory requirements yes. for being able to get the vehicle onto the road. Mm -hmm. And you've got far lower capital requirements for each of the manufacturing. You know, if you want to set up a factory to manufacture scooters or mopeds or something like that, you can get that built for a couple hundred million dollars rather than a couple of billion yes. dollars for so you've got an order of magnitude less thus we get to the question which is do you know much about the foxconn partnership with gogoro and is that part of the mih alliance and can you uh, shed any more light that on when that? i asked him about he did not reveal much about that we talked naturally more about the recent relationship struck with fisker they'll produce future yes. fisker vehicles and also with stellantis They've formed a joint venture based in the Netherlands of all places to do innovative things with, with electric cars and with the connectivity, but he did not go into much detail. Let's speculate a little bit right now where it gets interesting for me is, you know, if you look at e-bikes and where to source, you go Google it, it's all Chinese manufacturers. Uh, I wrote down some mm -hmm. of their names because they're so much fun, but there's no alternative. Who else makes them and then the U.S. State Department or the Defense Department today was talking about drones. I know it's not e-bikes, but drones, and they're complaining. Well, we can't buy Chinese drones anymore, but the American equivalent and they're really expensive. <laughs> equivalent is fourteen times as expensive and not as good. Yes. So yes, what I see Foxconn representing with this initiative, Gogoro and others, is an alternative sourcing for Western societies. And now it gets interesting. Oh, we can source from them. We can partner with them safely. We don't have to worry about our intellectual property as much. They may even invest in the United States and we might have some names we recognize. Yadia, Easy Go, Hang Pai, Jobo, B-Star, Tiny Xiaomi, Haimo. These are, these are the names of the e-bikes out of China and they just, they just dominate it. So I, I'm looking for Foxconn to sort of be an alternative source for affordable get around vehicles. I'm also fascinated as well, whether or not, so you know that that whole movement of like light, low speed electric yes. vehicles, that kind of 600 to $2,500 vehicle yes. class, that at the moment is not regulated. But I, I, I just, my, my sense is that those, if they're able to be exported, especially to countries with lower levels of regulation, 
would just be of immense interest too. Huge, huge potential. And that's a vision China has, I'm sure, saying we'll set the standard for that type of vehicle. We already have. And guess what? This is going to be super easy and convenient and welcomed by countries all over the world, Africa, Southeast Asia, South America. They'll need to follow up, of course, with charging infrastructure, make sure that's in place. But boy, that how simple is that? You don't have to worry about maintenance of a internal combustion engine. You've just plug and play and you're off and running. Uh, you mentioned low cost. So I just looked at the numbers in the first half of 2021, one third of total electric vehicles sold in China, 33 percent were priced at or under seven thousand dollars. So one third. one third. OK, so. But is that all the Wuling? That's that the Wuling EV. The Wuling's that... huge there. They're the main player yeah, there. It's yeah. most a lot of Wuling. They're around five thousand dollars. But and I know that's a car that's bigger than what you're talking about. But the point yeah. being, if they can play so effectively at seven thousand, five thousand, they'll be there at twenty five hundred and two thousand two. And then when they export, they subsidize things like that. So make it very affordable to a lot of people around the world before they build the infrastructure for big cars <laughs> that yes. get out in front of things. Yeah, and they'll, they'll look a lot smarter for it. Yeah, well, I think that there's just something to be said for, you know, the charging infrastructure and things like that. You know, a lot of these, that a lot of these small lightweight electric vehicles, you can take the battery with you yes. into your house and charge it because it's small enough because the vehicle's really light and you don't have to, you know, I, I think a lot about the, in the markets that you're going to start going into. So I've done an interview with a guy who runs one of Three Wheels United, which runs one of the largest electric tuk-tuk rental companies in India. And the whole thing for them is like the economics of it are just so compelling, yes. you know? Yes. And the biggest problem had been electric, like the charging of but actually the vehicles are now small enough that they can take the batteries with them and Portable. everybody's very happy. Portable, yeah. it's all that sort of stuff, right? Like the, the portability of a small lithium-ion battery to go into all of these spaces, I just think is... It's going to really, for a lot of countries, people will just go, well, why on earth would I ever go and buy one of these old kind of cars? Which gives me great hope yes. because I, you know, I think better from cars a, or, why or, do I do my mobility or stuff? Or back to Jakarta or Bangkok, forget these gasoline powered motorcycles that just pollute, like there's no end of pollution in the air in those cities. We're going to take those away. Yeah. It's gone. gone. They'll look back at that and say, how did we ever get into that mess? Yeah, <laughs> totally. So, you know, other than Foxconn with the GoGo partnership, like, do you have any other insights of companies that are interesting in that space or that are that are working on building the kind of low end electric vehicles out of China that are looking to export, that are looking to, to, to kind of bring those to, to fruition? Here's the thing about those vehicles is that and include including Wuling is that there's a catch. Of course, there's a reason why they're so low cost is that when it comes to safety standards, reliability, quality, endurance, there's question marks there. So I haven't seen a star player arise yet, except for, say, for example, Xiaomi. And Xiaomi's such mm-hmm. a fascinating number two now in the world in smartphones, smartphones. smartphone delivery. Yeah. Getting into the auto industry now, announcing they're going to play in electric vehicle space. And they make some really compelling, very good-looking e-bikes priced in the yeah. range you were talking about. So they would be probably the number one candidate in my mind to look at in terms of that type of vehicle. In some ways, they're already there. A very impressive company. Mm. Will they be able to export? There's just like this black box around products that are sold in China and then exported from China. So the Chinese automakers have been trying for years and years and years to crack the U.S. market. They come and for one reason or another, they come to the conclusion, oh, we're not ready yet. It's a different world. It's different. It's competitive in China on price, but it's competitive in the U.S. on so many different fronts that it'll be a test to see if a Chinese brand can really penetrate and do well in Western markets. Have we seen any yet? I guess Huawei phones, maybe, Mm -hmm. but vehicles, BYD buses. Yeah, they've done really well. Also as well, and, and actually I wanted to just, maybe we can finish up here, is on Tesla, because I I have a Model 3, which was manufactured in China. You know, it was one of the flips that they happened, I think it happened mid last year, where they stopped exporting them to New Zealand from the US and when China came on board or came online. And so mine came and it's spotless, like it's impeccable. Yeah. It's, I had a concerns in the early days around, I actually had a Model 3 order about 
three years ago and I canceled it because I live not close to a service center and everyone was complaining about the build quality of these yeah. new model threes that were coming out of the U S factory and all the build lines and kind of panel gaps and all this sort of stuff. My own car, this is brilliant. I haven't had any issues with it at all. It's been awesome. And I just kind of look at it and go, man, China, you know, that is kind of of interest to me, but that doesn't strike me as a Chinese driven thing. That was just a, you know, well, Tesla worked out that it was easier to ship them out of China than it was to do it. In the yeah. US. That's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know how they calculate that. And they may have had a side deal with China and say within a couple of years, we'll start to export because that's China's sort of a Chinese demand on any automaker that comes into the country. We want, how soon will you start exporting from here? To your point about quality though, you know, it's so interesting to see that when you come to the question of quality, we know through the Apple iPhone and through your Tesla made in Shanghai, that Chinese products made in manufacturing in China can be of impeccable quality, world-class. Yeah. Uh, GM used yeah. to say openly that I think five of their seven most productive and efficient and high quality plants in the world are in China and they're not alone. So you have tremendously high quality products coming out of China. At the same time, you also have Chinese companies that are interested in cutting costs and cutting corners, and they put products out in the market that make us look twice and say, oh my goodness, this is made in China. Yeah, of course, confirmed. Both those both yes. those realities are true. And so it can be a little bit confusing sometimes like, oh, is made in China good or made in China bad? Well, yes. <laughs> 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 yes, they are. But awesome. Uh, but your, yeah. your, I would bet that your Model 3 manufactured in the Shanghai plant is of higher manufacturing quality than the one made in Fremont. Just That's just how it's done when the Chinese get going. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for your time. This has just been such a fascinating chat around a whole range of different things. You clearly know what you're talking about. So for folks who do want to track down, you are winning an Asia podcast. Yes. My company is called Zozo Go. You can find us at www.zozogo.com. Lots of good stuff on there, including our newsletter, access to our podcast, other fun uh, data. And then the podcast is called Winning in Asia. It's on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Spreaker, all the rest. Yep. Check it out. You won't be sorry. No, no, you won't. Yeah, as I said, we've been struggling to find the right people who, who really could speak authoritatively about China because I think it's just one of these... It's been a giant gap in our knowledge as we've gone and talked about, you know, we interview all these people and most of what we can see in terms of entrepreneurship of the new vehicles that are coming down the pipe, mostly US-based, some in Europe. But I'm very keen and one of my desires is to get better at covering China because I just feel like it's where the new stuff will come from that I think is Especially really interesting. Especially for micromobility because the need is there. How are we going to move these billion and a half people around in an efficient manner. We've built all the highways, the airports, the trains, the high-speed trains, the subways. We've put in place regulation for EVs. Now we still have a billion people to move around. <laughs> How are we going to get that done? Oh, fantastic. E-bikes and other micromobility solutions. It's, it's just getting started. It's a very promising yeah. area. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, looking forward to hopefully having you on again soon. Terrific. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.